Okay, um, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. So Hebrews chapter 9, more toward the uh, end of the Bible, not completely at the end, but uh, nearer to it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, and um, then after reading that together, we are going to uh, continue on in our series, our catechetical series, on uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, we'll look at uh, that in connection with Rome, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 um, this afternoon. And then we're going to pick up again on it probably next week as we consider the whole matter of who actually is invited to the table and who should participate. But this afternoon we're going to be considering uh, something that you probably uh, rarely think about, and that is uh, uh, an alternative to the celebration of the Lord's Supper as the way that we understand it and practice it. And that's the way that the Lord's Supper is practiced in the Roman Catholic Church particularly in the Mass. You know, the Mass is a rather elaborate ritual, and as part of the Roman Catholic Mass, you have what is called the Eucharist, or the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but we're going to look at the importance of how that is celebrated, what it points to, and how it differs, how it compares and contrasts with the way that we practice the Lord's Supper and understand it here. And just, just one other thing before we read um, from Hebrews, you might say, well... Why are we even doing this? And, and the reason, um, I, the only reason I can give you initially is because it's part of our catechetical series. I just, it's part of question answer 80, and I just don't want to say, well, you know, it's not really important, and um, therefore we're going to skip over it, and we're going to go on to the next questions and answers. You know, we have to go through this in sequence, and I'm glad to do so, because I think this is a very important matter. So we do it because it's the sequence of the catechism, but, but also for this reason. By doing a compare and contrast between the Lord's Supper and the Mass, we gain a better understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. What makes the good news good news? Well, you're going to understand that hopefully well or better this afternoon as we look at the Roman Catholic Mass and its difference from the Lord's Supper. Okay, so let's read from Hebrews chapter 9. The book of Hebrews really has to do with the comparison contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. All right, so Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the intentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent that is not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not with, by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So we're going to uh, end our reading at that point. Now I want to draw your attention to um, the Heidelberg Catechism. And typically what we do at this point is uh, I read the question, and then we're going to confess the answer. So let's do that now. Here's the question. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? Let's say together. The Lord's Supper testifies to us, first, that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ, unless he is still offered for them daily by the priest. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ, and it occurs idolatry. Mm. Now, uh, it's rather interesting the way that this uh, question and answer ends, isn't it? And the language is rather strong. In fact, uh, I'm probably correct in saying this, that this is probably the, the strongest language that we find in all of the Heidelberg Catechism. Notice what it says. It says, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. And this has unsettled the stomachs of uh, some who have inherited this document, and subsequently they have softened the language somewhat uh, in different renditions of this. Um, we have uh, decided to keep this, this, this word accursed idolatry, and I'll tell you why, and there's a little bit of a historical background to this, you may not be aware of this. But there is a, a, a confessional document that goes back a number of years, exactly to the time that the Heidelberg Catechism was written. It's called the Council of Trent. This is a confessional document, a theological document of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Council of Trent lays forth the major doctrines of the Catholic faith. It was part of a, what we call a counter-reformation movement. So you may be aware of this in case you're not, that the 16th century is known as the time of the Protestant Reformation. It was basically a back-to-Bible movement. And so what you had is you had the Roman Catholic Church, but emerging from the Catholic Church is also what we call the, the Protestant churches. Okay? And they differed in their understanding of the Roman Catholic Mass, and particularly the Eucharist, as it is compared and contrasted with the Lord's Supper. And in the, the document, the Council of Trent, I'll be short with this, but I think it's kind of interesting that in the, this document, the Council of Trent, it, there are over a hundred what we call anathemas, or pronouncements of curses upon those who do not embrace the fundamental doctrines of the Catholic Church, particularly the Mass. 
And when it lays out the Mass, it lays out particular doctrines relating to the Mass. He who does not believe these things stands anathematized. That is, that person stands accursed. Again, who do not embrace the truths of the Catholic Church, including the Mass. What the Heidelberg Catechism is doing here as a Protestant doctrine is reacting against those anathemas and pronouncing, in a sense, an anathema of its own by saying, if you embrace the teachings of the Mass and you do not embrace Christ's teachings about the Lord's Supper as articulated in the confessional documents that we have, then you also stand accursed. Because when you take a look at the Mass, it is an accursed idolatry. And it doesn't, it doesn't soften the language there, but it's, it's just right up front. And I think sometimes it has to be said. Sometimes things just have to be confronted, as you know. I mean, even as a parent, you're dealing with your children. You're raising your children. You try to softly bring them along, but sometimes they need a sharp word. Sometimes even in the church, right, we need a sharp word to, to pay attention. And this is what you have going on here, okay? That's why that language is used. But then what, again, is the Roman Catholic Mass? All right. I want to I begin on a little bit of a, a personal note and then bring our attention to Hebrews chapter 9 and then have a basic explanation of the Roman Catholic Mass. Many you, uh, of you are aware, and I've explained this before but not in great detail, about 35 years ago, uh, Joy and I uh, were living in Montreal, Quebec, and we worked at a Christian hospitality center where we had the opportunity of uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people from all around the world. And I'm not going to get into all the details of that now. Two things I want you to know. Um, we lived in a neighborhood that was a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. And within walking distance, there was a large church with a big dome, and it was called St. Joseph Oratory. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Montreal, if you've visited that, but maybe you have, or maybe you've seen pictures, or maybe you know nothing of it at all. But it's a large church, a big dome, and there are wooden steps a number of levels wooden steps because this church is on a hill and they lead up to the entrance of that church and pilgrims from all around the world would go down on, on their bare knees and they would uh, pray the rosary as they would go up those steps to the, to the uh, ultimate end of their pilgrimage, which is St. Joseph Oratory. So it's a very well-known Catholic church. But, but secondly, and even more well-known Catholic church within Montreal is the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral, which is a reflection of the larger and more ornate Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And the place where we worked uh, in the hospitality center was in a place called Old Montreal, and it was literally just a few blocks from the Notre Dame Cathedral. And the Notre Dame Cathedral was, was known by many people, and it was a very popular spot. So tourists would go there, but also, for instance, Pavarotti, the great tenor, would sing there, and uh, Celine Dion, the great pop singer, she was married there and all that. But for our purposes here this afternoon, probably the most important thing for Roman Catholics is that there were daily masses there. Now, I, I don't know if you have uh, ever observed uh, a Roman Catholic Mass. But if you have observed it, if you have witnessed it, you probably came away um, trying to describe what you experienced. And I would describe a Roman Catholic Mass in this way. It is, it is characterized by these words, by, by solemnity. You sense that there's something very important, heavy going on there. Solemnity, sanctity, uh, gravity. It's a certain weight to it. Uh, ritual. It's a very elaborate ritual which is designed through this elaborate ritual to cover 
the, the basic parts of Christ's ministry, particularly his suffering and his death and his burial and his resurrection. It's all elaborately displayed through various movements. And that you could also, if, if you witnessed it, and you're not aware of what's going on in it, there's a, there's a certain ritualistic beauty to it. I remember talking with um, a Jewish man who converted to Catholicism. This was in a, a funky place called uh, Jerome, Arizona. And I actually visited there with a, another Canadian Reformed minister, and we were talking with this guy who was in charge of taking care of the small Roman Catholic church in Jerome. And he was, he was born and raised a Jew, as we were, and we were talking to him about this. And we said, why, why did you become a Catholic? And he said, because of the Mass. Because of the very real presence of Christ in the Mass. And I was moved, moved by the ritual and the beauty of it. Now, here's the thing. Apart from outward experiences, what we have to try to grapple with is, okay, but what's, what's really going on in the Mass? And secondly, really, why should it matter to us, really? We're not Catholics, right? We're going to look at that, all right? So let's go on to take a look at uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, well, the book of Hebrew, uh, the chapter 9 is in the overall book of Hebrews. And the, the book of Hebrews compares and contrasts the first two-thirds of the Bible with the last third of the Bible. So it contrasts Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. And if, if you could capture the main theme of the book of Hebrews, and let's simplify it, it's, it's simply this, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better, as is laid out in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than the Old Testament significant persons of the Old Covenant, namely Moses and the high priest Aaron. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood. And Jesus' once and for all sacrifice is better than the multiplicity of bloody sacrifices in the Old Covenant. So, so Jesus, Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Then when we come to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, in these opening verses, we have a description of the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament uh, sacrifices. And all of these that we read about in Hebrews chapter 9 in the book of Hebrews as a whole were designed to point our hearts and minds and our ancestors' hearts and minds of the Old Covenant forward. Forward to Jesus, <coughs> the Messiah, and his once and for all sacrifice on the cross. So the furniture of the tabernacle pointed forward to Jesus. The priesthood of the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. The sacrifices that went on in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, they all pointed forward to Jesus. And the main point of the book of Hebrews is this. Now with all these things pointing forward to Jesus, and now that Jesus has come, these things are no longer needed. They actually, in the words of Hebrews, they become obsolete. They become obsolete. And this is perhaps most uh, movingly articulated, I think, on a very uh, important day within Judaism, and that's a day called Yom Kippur, which is uh, known as the Day of Atonement. And on this day, and Hebrews 9 spells this out as well, on this day you have a high priest, and there's only one high priest in the worship and the liturgy of Judaism. You have the high priest who goes into a special place called 
the most holy place or the holy of holies. So you have a multiplicity of priests who offer sacrifices, daily sacrifices, but on one day, a very important day of the year, you have not just a regular priest who goes into the holy place, but you have a high priest who goes through a very significant curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And he goes through that curtain and he takes with him the blood of bulls and goats, and what he does is he sprinkles it on a piece of furniture, a very important piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And he sprinkles it on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat. And when the blood and, of bulls and goats are offered, it propitiates or it smooths over the wrath of God upon the sins of the people that were committed unintentionally. So the point is, again, all of these sacrifices, you've got the priesthood, you've got the high priesthood, and all of that, and again, it's all pointing forward to Jesus. So now, when we come to verses 11 and 12, it's kind of the kicker of the passage that we read this afternoon, what you see, again, is that there is a better way, and that better way, the better answer to all of this is through Jesus Christ. Look at verses 11 and 12, if you would, of Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, speaking about heaven, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered into heaven once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So again, just to make this very clear, you have the daily sacrifices of the priests, and then annually, once a year, you have the high priest going into the most holy place, and all of these were designed to point forward to Jesus who comes, and what he does is he doesn't take away sin by means of, the, of animals, of the blood of bulls and goats, but what he does is he, he sheds his own blood. And he doesn't do it repeatedly, but he sheds it once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. And it's very interesting that when you take a look at the book of Hebrews, if there is one refrain, it's like a broken record. It goes over and over and over again. You know what that one phrase is? Once for all. Once for all. Once for all. Once for all, in case you didn't get it, once for all. I mean, it keeps repeating that to drive home the point that Jesus is the beautiful fulfillment of all these daily and yearly bloody sacrifices to which the people of God, they just feel this weight lift from them. I mean, when you really embrace that, and it's, it's hard to fully embrace it, I think, sometimes because we didn't grow up in the old covenant and we didn't look forward to that. But when Hebrews brings it out, man, there's no more need for those sacrifices. There are no need for the temple or tabernacle. There's no need for the priesthood anymore. All of this is obsolete. Jesus has paid the price. See, that's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. It's the good news that we give to people who are struggling with their sins and think that somehow through their own performance, they got to keep doing better and better and better to get into God's graces. And what a beautiful thing it is when you can point people in the way of death to self and an ultimate clinging to Jesus who paid that one sacrifice for sin for all time. Do we understand the comfort and the assurance that that gives us and the freedom that that gives us? That is, that is I mean, the book of Hebrews is full of the gospel, full of the good news. All right, now, you might say, okay, all right, I get that. Hopefully it was explained clearly. I understand the gospel there. But what, is, what, is that, uh, what does that have to do with the Mass? 
And ultimately, why should I care? All right. So, what I want to do at this point, I want to say three things about the Mass, because there's a lot of stuff we could say about the Mass, but three things about the Mass. And basically what I'm doing is I'm providing a synopsis, synopsis of the, uh, a summary of basically what we have in the Heidelberg Catechism. And I want to talk about the Mass, and I want to do a comparison contrast with the Lord's Supper, and then I'm going to finally just end with this briefly, and that is, why does this, why does this really matter? Okay. So let's keep it simple. When you think of the Mass, think of three things. The Mass is not so much a meal at a table, but it's a sacrifice on an altar. All right, so many of us here have either participated or we witnessed the Lord's Supper. All right, now, what do we have up front here? Well, we got a table here, but we have a bigger table, glass table. We have bread and wine on it. But the Mass is not so much a meal at a table, but it's a sacrifice on an altar. So, um, I, I would assume that a number of us, probably not all of us, but a number of us have either attended a Roman Catholic church, maybe saw a worship service, or at least entered into a Roman Catholic church. If you have done that, and you enter into the Roman Catholic church, what's front and center? Is it a pulpit? No, it's an altar. See, you come to a, what we call a Protestant church like this. You come through these doors, and I get it. We, we're in a simple gym. That's fine. But when you come through those doors, even as a guest, what's the first thing you see up here? You see a pulpit. Why is that? It's because the Apostle Paul says to Timothy as a pastor, this is what I want you to do, and it's your primary calling. Not exclusive calling, but your primary calling. It's to preach the Word. I mean, this is why you go to seminary. This is what you've been trained for, to preach the Word of God in season, out of season. When the people want to hear it, maybe when they don't want to hear it, but you preach the word. The Apostle Peter says, For you have been born again, not by seed which is corruptible, but by that which is incorruptible, that is, the living and abiding word of God. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And then he goes on to say, And this is the word that was preached to you. Preaching. Going to Catholic church, there's an altar. Which leads us to the second point. Like, why an altar? Here's the second point. The Mass is not so much a remembrance of Christ, which is our celebration of Lord's Supper. But what it is, it's a re-sacrifice of Christ. Do you know that? There's a re-sacrifice of Christ every time the Mass is celebrated. The Catholic Church teaches us that the keys of the kingdom have been given the Holy Mother Church, that is the Roman Catholic Church. And these keys either open or close the door of heaven. What you do for God's people in the opening of the key is to have, come, have them come to the Mass because it's in the Mass where they receive the forgiveness of sins through a re-sacrifice of Christ on that altar. So when the priest utters the words, this is my body and this is my blood, the elements of bread and wine or the wafer and wine actually turn into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And Christ then is, is there, there is a re-sacrifice of Christ as it, it is given to the people in the wafer and the tasting of the wine. And, you know, this is... Now, now here's, here's what the Catholics will say. They will say, well, listen, it'd be very easy for us to say, well, listen, don't you read the book of Hebrews? I mean, Catholics read their Bible. 
You know, more and more Catholics are reading the Bible, not just the priests. You say, over and over again, the, the book of Hebrews says, once and for all, once for all, Christ gave his own blood as a sacrifice. They say, yeah, we agree with you. But when we re-sacrifice Christ, it's an unbloody sacrifice. So we're not taking away the bloody sacrifice of Hebrews, but there's an unbloody sacrifice that takes place. But whether it's unbloody or bloody, the point is a sacrifice is being made. And the Catholic Church will teach us that we do not have the full forgiveness and eternal forgiveness and eternal redemption unless we keep going back to the Mass. Because it's in the re-sacrifice of the Mass, there, there is a propitiatory sacrifice taking place. That is, that the wrath of God is being taken away upon God's people in that re-sacrifice. And there's the taking away of sins. Until you sin again, this is why you need to keep coming back to the Mass. This is why you're not a good Catholic. And this is why it's a mortal sin. That if you don't keep coming back to the Mass, you cannot be assured of the forgiveness of sins. You listen to that and you go, boy, that, that's got echoes of the Old Covenant. Exactly. The Lord's Supper teaches us what? The Lord's Supper teaches us that when we gather together and in repentance and faith partake of the element of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, we remember when we eat this and drink this in repentance and faith that our sins are taken away once and for all. There is eternal redemption. Not a temporary redemption, so that we have to keep coming back to the Mass, but an eternal redemption. You think about how freeing that is and what assurance that gives us. One final thing quickly about the Mass. And the Mass is uh, no, not so much a remembrance of Christ, as I said. And it's not so much a worship of Christ at the right hand of God. But the Mass is a worship of Christ in the elements of the wafer and the wine. It's there where Christ is to be. Not just in heaven, but when you come to the Mass, you worship Christ in the bread and the wine. Why? Because in the bread and the wine, you have the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. So when the words of the consecration of the priests are uttered, this is my body and this is my blood, there is a belief that a miracle takes place and that the body and the blood or the, the wafer and the wine actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you listen to that and you go, well, that's, you know, for, for people who are not accustomed to that, they say that's kind of strange because I've never seen either in the Catholic Church or in my own life that if I have bread and wine in my hand and it actually turns into the body and blood of Jesus that I have a chunk of flesh in my hand and I have blood in my hand as well. This is why the Catholics will say it's a miracle. It's called transubstantiation. Trans meaning change and substantiation from the word substance or essence. So the miracle that takes place is when the words of consecration are uttered. Not the form changes, but the essence or the substance of the bread and wine change. So that when you partake of it, you are actually eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ. And in addition to that, the Catholic Church teaches that because Christ is present in the bread and the wine, it is there where he is to be worshipped. Because wherever you have the presence of Christ, there we are to worship him. The book of Hebrews, as well as the catechetical document that he has, says, no, listen. Christ is not actually in the bread and wine. Where is Christ present now? Christ is present, he's ascended, and he's at the right hand of God. And it is there where we are to worship him. 
We don't worship Christ in earthly elements. That's idolatry. But we worship the ascended Christ. And it's there where our hearts are knit to him as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Our hearts are lifted up to him through the ministry of the Spirit where we praise him for his ascended kingship and love for us. And also, at the time, we also memorialize what he has done for us in the forgiveness of sins that preceded that. Now, that's the basics. That's the basics. So, you might draw back from this, and you might say, well, okay, fine, but we're not Catholics here, and, you know, there was a lot of tension in the early years, I get that, but we've gotten beyond that, and there's a lot of discussions between Catholics and Protestants and all that. Why are we making such a big deal of this? Aren't we splitting hairs? You know, and this is where it, it's helpful to become a, a, a student of history a bit. You know, we have, we have brothers and sisters in Christ, especially during the time of the 1500s, who, who gave their very lives for things that you're hearing for the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes. They gave their lives. Um, quickly, you know, one such person was a woman named Lady Jane Grey. She was a young Protestant believer who, who disagreed what was going on in the Mass, and you could pay a dear price for that at the time. She was only 16 years old, and she was uh, imprisoned for her convictions. And there was a, a Roman Catholic theologian named John Feckenham who visited her on a number of occasions and tried to persuade her of the truth of the Mass, and she would not yield. And four days before she was uh, killed, she said this, and A.V., can you put the if you could put that, yeah, Lady Jane Grey. Most assuredly, she said, I do not believe I receive the flesh and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, but I receive bread and wine, which bread, when it is broken, and wine, when it is poured, helps me to remember that Christ's body was broken and his blood shed for me. A simple statement but one that captures the essence of what we confessed with our own, own mouths earlier from this document that we follow, the Heidelberg Catechism. But listen, um, by the way, she was beheaded for her faith. You know, it, it makes you wonder how many of us, if that was posed to us, would say, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to give my life for the truth of the Lord's Supper. Maybe say, is it, is, it, is it worth dying for? Well, the gospel's worth dying for, see? And it's the gospel that's contained in the, in the Lord's Supper. But maybe you look at this and you kind of go, well, maybe, maybe you know, is, is, should we give as much weight to this as we are? Should we give as much weight to this as we are? Um, and the answer to that is yes. And I'll tell you why. Because at the heart of the Lord's Supper is, again, the gospel. If you had to explain someone in 30 seconds or less what the gospel is, what would you say? Well, I can do it in probably about five to seven seconds, and here's the gospel. It's more than this, but fundamentally it's this. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that God the Father has sent his son Jesus into the world to save sinners. To save sinners and reconcile them to himself. 
That's the gospel. And, you know, the, the Apostle Paul captures the gospel very, very beautifully um, when he says this. If you put the second one on there, please, from the book of Colossians. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. He did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so we have this debt of sin that is before God, and this debt is weighty, this debt is heavy, and there's no way that you and I, through our performance, can pay that off. Absolutely no way. And what Jesus does is he takes these legal demands that are against us. He takes the, the debt of this sin. And what he does is he shoulders it. He takes it upon himself. And he says, I will take this. I will take your sin and the weight of it to the cross. And then that debt of sin and the weight of that sin is actually, in the words of Paul, it is actually nailed. It's nailed to the wood cross. And there it's left. There it is left. And this is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, that when we partake of the bread and the wine, we say, you know what? Yes, I believe. I believe that the debt of my sin has been paid for. I believe the weight of my sin has been assumed by Jesus Christ. And I believe that that has been done once and for all. Something to memorialize and something I embrace as I partake of the bread and the wine in remembrance of him. And we don't have to worship Jesus in the bread and the wine. No, we serve not a crucified Christ, first and foremost, but a risen and ascended Christ. And by the way, this is why if you go to a Protestant church, not in every Protestant church, but many Protestant churches, you have crosses in the building, don't you? You don't have crucifixes. You ever think about that? In a crucifix, what do you see? You see a Jesus hanging on the cross. But in Protestant churches, the cross is empty. Why is that? Because Jesus is not still hanging on the cross. Jesus is risen, and Jesus ascended, and it's there where we are to praise him, and we are to worship him now and for all eternity. So, my friends, we worship in a church that has been liberated by the gospel, and Jesus invites us into that gospel now and every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So let's thank him for that gospel and for the freedom and the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. One other thing that I forgot to do, and I'm, I apologize for this. I want to pray in just a moment. Could you go back to question and answer 80 of the catechism? I'm not going to do further explaining. Um, oh, go back to the one you had. The one you just had up there before this one. There you go. There's my phone number. If you have a question that you want to text in, I don't know if there's going to be any questions about this sermon, but if there is, feel free to send it in. And let them be questions relating to the material that we considered and uh, not something else uh, related uh, to something else. So let's, with that in mind, let's come to the Lord and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we draw near to you now and we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we could have. Lord, sometimes when we look at matters relating to uh, especially history, we wonder, especially something that happened so many centuries ago, we wonder, what, do, what is the relevance of this for us? But Lord, we see the relevancy tonight. We see the relevancy of the eternal redemption that we have in Jesus Christ and the beautiful truth that Jesus has given his life for us once and for all for the forgiveness of our sins.
now and throughout eternity. We thank you for this. We thank you for the gospel. May it continue to be preached here, Lord, with power and with persuasion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.